know if you're aware of this or not, but in April, this church will celebrate its 27th birthday. Grace Community Church will be 27 years old. Our first service was held on April 16th, 1995, and I had a head full of jet black hair, if you can believe it. There were 58 people in our very first service, and that Sunday, half of them made a decision. They made a decision not to come back the following Sunday. I can vividly remember the first time that I stood before Grace Community Church. The title of my message, it came from 1 Samuel chapter 16, was you can't judge a book by its grocery bag cover. I guess I was into long sermon titles back then. The first song we sang was an old Phillips, Craig, and Dean tune called The Concert of the Age. The parking lot at the Marvin Pittman School Auditorium on the campus of Georgia Southern only held 20 cars, and we were lucky to fill them up. Uh, By the way, it was the Marvin Pittman Laboratory School Auditorium before it was renovated a few years ago. It wasn't nearly as nice as it is today. Since then, we've enjoyed a lot of significant firsts as a church together. Uh, At the tail end of the year 2000, in December, We had our first service in this auditorium. I can remember decisions that have been made for the first time by people in this church, and the impact continues on. I can remember our first trip to Promise Keepers. We had a couple of vans full of men, and we drove to the Georgia Dome, and it was an experience unlike anything else. I can remember baptizing my mother 15 years ago, and that was a first for the both of us. I'll never forget my co-pastor at the time, Many of you who've been around a long time, you'll remember Doug. Doug helped me start Grace Community Church. Doug and I were childhood friends. We played football on the same team, soccer on the same team, baseball on the same team. We went to college at the same place. Doug was my co-pastor in the early days of Grace Community Church. But now, we didn't hire Doug because he was a pastor teacher. We hired him because he was an administrator and a group builder, and that's what he did, and he did it very well. But the first Sunday that I was going to be absent at Grace Community Church, this is probably two years in, I think, I either went on vacation or I was sick, Doug had the message. And people told me, man, he did well. Mike, you could tell he studied because he got up there and he put it all on the line and he gave him everything he had. He said everything he could possibly say and he was done in nine minutes. (laughs) And that was a standard that I've never been able to live up to, I'm sorry, to say. Everybody remembers those significant firsts in their life. I can remember my first kiss. It was with my wife, Amy, on our wedding day. I said that for all the young people in the audience. I can remember my first day at college. I can remember my first dorm room. I can remember my first roommate. I can remember my first apartment when I was married and completing my schooling. I can remember our first house, Amy and me. I can remember The first paycheck I received from Grace Community Church. If you've got children, you can remember the birth of your first child, I am certain. Now, in a far less meaningful way, I can remember the first time I put a cigarette in my mouth. I was in the third grade. And one of my buddies in the neighborhood was a sixth grader named Johnny Nipper. And Johnny Nipper was disliked by my parents because he was a bad influence on their baby. Sure enough... He offered me a cigarette. He was about a pack-a-day man, I guess, as a sixth grader. (laughs) 
And we were in the woods behind my house. There was a lot of woods behind our house. And when I got far enough away from the house so that I knew no one could see, I went ahead and took one of his cigarettes, and I put it in my mouth, and I lit it up. And I coughed and choked like you do when you're trying a cigarette, especially in the third grade. And Johnny said to me, Mike, you know how much trouble you'd be in if your dad ever caught you smoking cigarettes? And he no sooner got those words out of his mouth, and I looked up in my tree fort, because tree forts are the best place to smoke cigarettes, and there stood my dad, looking right at me. And he asked me a question, Michael, what's that in your hand? Because, you know, I had taken it and done like this. Kind of like you guys do when I show up at your house and announce you take your beer or your cigarette, you <laughs> stick it back here like this, right? Michael, what's that in your hand? He wanted to know. Now, in a far more significant way and under much different circumstances, that is the exact same question that God asked Moses in Exodus chapter 4. Moses wasn't in trouble. He wasn't about to be grounded like I was. But the answer to that one simple question would shape and frame the rest of his life. You know, when you drove in this morning, you saw the giant sandbox out front because they've completely torn everything up. Progress is being made. It's going to be slow for a little while, but eventually you're going to see the steel going up and the building being enclosed. And as this is happening, I can't get this question out of my mind. It kind of pounds around my brain. It's in my heart. I want to say, okay, Grace Community Church, look around you. What do we have in our hands? What do we have in our hands? A new building's going up. New people visit this church every Sunday. I meet new families every service every Sunday. The church is growing. More people are getting involved. What do we have on our hands? Culturally, I think there's never been a greater need for the church to shine in its community than right now. I believe many people in our community are, are frustrated. They're even angry. There's never been a greater need for people to find peace and security and comfort because we've grown skeptical. We're tired of the political arguing and fighting, vaccine mandates, the mask debate goes back and forth. Nobody knows who they can trust. I'll tell you who they can trust. They can trust God. And it's our opportunity to demonstrate that kind of faith. I think there's no more relevant topic for us to discuss today than that of faith. As I mentioned last time, it's one of the most practical subjects in all of the Bible. And look, I'm realistic. I understand that very few of us are ever going to lead the emancipation of our people from their bondage in Egypt like Moses did. Very few of us are ever going to build a 450-foot barge in our backyard like Noah did. But I'm convinced that faith is every bit as relevant today as it ever was for any of them. Today we're going to examine the life of Moses and God's calling on his life. Because I'll tell you what men like Abraham and David and Moses and Noah, I'll tell you one thing they all had in common. They all understood that once God proves himself trustworthy, you can stand on his promises. And that's what I hope you'll recognize today. Once God proves himself trustworthy, and he always does, we can stand on his word. Whether it's David, Abraham, Noah, Moses, God proved himself trustworthy. And following that experience then, these men understood they could take God at his word and they could trust his promise. The exact same principle applies to you and me. God will always prove himself trustworthy. It usually happens early on in the faith walk. 
It's usually something of maybe little significance even, but you believe based upon the moment and the situation that God has shown up in your life. I remember for me vividly, I remember the first time I believed that God showed up in my life. He met a need and answered a prayer that probably didn't take a lot of faith at that time to pray, but I was certain that God had intervened. God had moved. He proved himself. That's one of the reasons that I bought in as a young person. Usually early in the faith walk, God reveals that he's faithful, that he's dependable, and usually that's something that that sticks with us. You've probably had one of those experiences too. Something that might seem a lot smaller now looking back, but at the time it was pretty significant. And when it worked out, you couldn't help but believe God had moved on your behalf. But there's a sticky part. There's something that we can't really appreciate for what it is. And that is that God doesn't always prove himself in every circumstance. And we wish he would. You see, What Abraham and David and Moses and Noah, what they knew about God is that once he proves himself, now it's up to me to stand on his promise, to take him at his word, to consider him trustworthy because he's not going to prove himself in every one of my individual circumstances. He's not going to show up every time I get uncomfortable or my circumstance takes a turn for the worst. It's not as if God is going to just pop in and out of your life every time you call. That's not the way he operates. If that were the case, then we would walk by sight and not by faith. But the Bible makes it perfectly clear. Ours is a walk of faith. God, having proven himself trustworthy, faithful, I know I can trust him, and now I stand on his word. And the Bible is filled with his promises. Filled with his promises. You heard many of them a moment ago. Let me lay a few more on you. God promises in Matthew chapter 6 that he'll meet my needs. I can stand on that promise. God promises in Philippians chapter 4 that if I pray and I refuse to be anxious, God will grant me peace in my circumstance. God promises in Proverbs chapter 3 that if I trust him, he will guide me and make my path straight. God promises in Isaiah chapter 41 that he's always with me, so there's no need to be afraid. God promises in Romans chapter 8 that he can take a bad situation and create good from it. God promises in James chapter 4 that if if I'll submit to God and resist the enemy, eventually the enemy will flee from me. God promises in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that there's not one temptation out there that's so overpowering that I cannot resist it or escape it. You see, God does not always prove himself in all circumstances in every situation. That's what we would like, but that's not how he works. Once he has proven himself, however, we can mark it down. He can be trusted. God is faithful. That's what Moses knew, that perhaps we do not. So let's talk about Moses for a minute. You probably know the story of Moses, right? He was born a Hebrew. His family lived in bondage in Egypt, but he was raised in the household of Pharaoh. He was rescued from a basket floating down the river by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses grew up with the privilege of being the grandson of Pharaoh. As an adult, however, he embraced his Hebrew heritage. He looked at the suffering of his people 
and he would stand for it no longer. Moses saw two Egyptians beating a Hebrew, and he took up for them by killing the two Egyptians. That caused him to flee into the wilderness because he was a wanted man. In the wilderness, he met a woman. They got married. He went to work for her father. He tended his father-in-law's sheep for 40 years in the wilderness. And during that experience, God reached out to him at the burning bush. You familiar with that term? That story is incredible in Exodus chapter 3. There in the middle of nowhere, maybe it wasn't the middle of nowhere, but nowhere was really close. A bush caught on fire that sparked his curiosity when he investigated, God spoke to him in Exodus chapter 3. And at that confrontation with God, God invited him to join him at his work. God wanted Moses to be his spokesperson to the Hebrews and to Pharaoh. Five times as God tries to enlist the services of Moses, Moses objects. Moses says, nope, I'm not your man. It's during the third objection, the third time that he objects, that we read in chapter 4 and verse 1, follow along. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Again, this is the third of five objections. The first time in chapter 3 and verse 11, he objected, I'm not your man. Who am I? I'm a nobody. The second time, I'm not very eloquent. My brother Aaron is a much better spokesman than I'll ever be. Why not ask him? This is the third objection. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't take me seriously? Verse 2, then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Didn't I tell you it was the exact question? What is that in your hand? Nothing. What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. So like Indiana Jones, our hero Moses dislikes snakes. I'm not necessarily afraid of snakes, but I sure don't like them. I don't like it, especially if they're poisonous. When I'm working in the woods and I turn over a log or bring down a tree or something, and there's a snake, the feeling that goes through me is not pleasant. I don't know how you feel. It usually involves changing my shorts. Moses acted just like that. Moses ran from the snake. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. I'd say that proved something for Moses, wouldn't you? I'd say God had definitely shown up. It wasn't enough that the bush was on fire and God was speaking to him from within the bush. I think throwing the piece of wood on the ground and it becomes a snake and then you pick it up and it's a piece of wood again, that's proof enough. That's good enough for me. God had proven himself to Moses just like he's proven himself to you, just like he's proven himself to me. Now Moses would stand on the promise. Keep reading. Verse 5, this, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So the faith that Moses would demonstrate was going to impact other people. That's always the case. Your faith, whether you know it or not, 
impacts others. Your faith, whether you see it or not, has impact on those around you. This is so that everyone will know that I've appeared to you. You see, follow me now. This whole experience was just for God to prove himself to Moses. That's the first and only time he does it. Because everything else that would follow that Moses does that's just incredible would be to prove God to the people. Moses would be responsible to stand on the promises of God, to take God as faithful and take him at his word. So here's the question, Grace. What's that in your hand? What's in your hand right now? What ability do you have? What, what circumstance do you own? What do you possess that God could use? Now, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends, but at the time, Moses didn't. We know that Moses would eventually become the man. I mean, Moses is a big dog in your Old Testament. You name the top big dogs of the Old Testament, Moses makes that list, I guarantee it, right? Moses would do incredible things for God. Moses would take that same staff and raise it and watch the waters part. Moses got closer than any other human being on the planet ever to witnessing firsthand the glory of God, and it almost killed him. Moses would stand before Pharaoh and demand the freedom for his people. God was ready to move through Moses. God was ready to use him, but, but what did Moses have to offer? That's part of his objections. What do I have to offer? Well, let's think about that for a minute. Moses was raised in privilege. Moses was educated in the household of Pharaoh. Moses was far more intelligent and educated than any of his Hebrew contemporaries. They were slaves. Moses spent 40 years leading men in Egypt. He was capable of managing and leading. That's just what God wanted. Moses, in addition, many Bible scholars believe, was very physically fit, kind of ruggedly handsome, the kind of man that we kind of want to follow. And yet notice, these qualifications didn't seem to matter to God. When, when God said, I'm going to use you, and Moses said, no, 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 I'm not up to the task. God didn't say, yes, you are. Let's go over your resume. Yes, you are. I see you're a leader of men. Yes, you are. I see you spent 40 years building in Egypt. Yes, you are. Look at you. People naturally want to follow you. That's not what God said. God instead points to something that seemed insignificant. Hey, Moses, what's that in your hand? It's a piece of wood. It's a staff. Shepherds use them. You see, if Moses would respond, and again, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends, if Moses would respond and God would do incredible things through him. And faith, faith would be the catalyst. Faith always is. Faith often challenges us like never before. When I read this 
small passage in my office this week from verses 2, 3, and 4, I came up with three simple ideas to help us better grasp what faith is and how it works. Number one, faith always challenges your perception. You perceive your circumstance a certain way. It seems obvious to you. Hey, Moses, what's that in your hand? A staff? Of course it's a staff. God knew it was a staff. Moses perceived it as a staff. Staffs were one in, uh, were, uh, all staffs were like is what I'm trying to say. A staff is a staff is a staff. So why does it matter to God? Because the question is one of perception, not appearance. What could that staff become in the hands of Moses when surrendered to God? You see, to Moses, it was a piece of wood. But to God, it was going to become an instrument, a supernatural sign to his countrymen and even to Pharaoh himself. There's a principle here. And that's God can transform the ordinary into the extraordinary. He does it all the time. God can transform what we would deem ordinary into something extraordinary. 27 years ago, we held our first service in 1995 at the Marvin Pittman School Auditorium when it became available. Now, believe me, this was not the venue that I wanted for Grace Community Church. We had to pack up everything we needed for church and get there early on Sunday mornings because the Janitor team didn't come in to clean the school building until Sunday afternoon in preparation for Monday morning, so that meant we had to walk into bathrooms and mop floors and clean restrooms. We had to sweep the floor. Oh, by the way, the auditorium had no air conditioning, so in the summer months, we had these giant fans that we used to circulate air, and we just turned up the volume on the sound system a little higher. Believe me, an ordinary school building, as I saw it, God didn't see it that way. God saw it as the extraordinary beginnings of Grace Community Church. I bought a, an old, rusted 1977 Chevrolet one-ton pickup truck, three-speed on the floor with a granny gear, four-wheel drive. It had no floorboard. It had rusted out. So I went to the Department of Transportation, and I got an old speed limit sign, and I, I cut it and bent it and fashioned it to the floor of that truck so you could drive down the road and not watch your life pass before your eyes. And as I said, we'd load that truck up every Sunday morning at like 5 o'clock in the morning with sound system and speakers. We had our information table and all of our literature. We had several trunks for the nursery. We had all kinds of uh, play pens, and, and we had all the materials that they would need in the children's church, and we'd go set all that up. Believe me, that truck was not the vehicle that I really wanted to use at the time, but God saw it as a vehicle for change in Statesboro. You know, I don't know if you hear this as often as I do, but you know what I hear most about this church when new people come? They say, I'll tell you what I like about grace. It just seems real. People seem real. They just seem authentic. It's not pretentious. It's not overly religious. People just seem authentic at that church. Well, think about that for a minute. That means that God is using ordinary men and women, just like you and me, to do extraordinary things in the lives of people who attend. You see, the question may sound simple. Hey, what's that in your hand? Oh, it's insignificant. It's nothing. But it's all about perception, not appearance. I read a funny story about a 
substitute middle school teacher who was in a car crash over the summer break, and it left him in a partial body cast from his hips up to his sternum. Well, it wasn't that terrible, so he could still put his shirt on, tie his tie, throw on his sport coat. And so he went to school the very first day. He walked into a class of unruly middle schoolers, tried to get them to sit down, tried to get them to mind their manners, tried to get them to be quiet. And because one of the windows was open, the breeze kept making his tie flap. And you know what a middle schooler will do with something like that. He became the object of ridicule and snide remarks and jokes. Well, knowing that they had no idea he was wearing a body cast under his clothing, and knowing that perception is far more valuable than appearance, he walked to his desk and grabbed his stapler and went, (laughs) stapled his tie down. And he had zero discipline problems the rest of the semester. (laughs) To the untrained eye, it appears as if grace is growing. New families, new people. We're, We're building a new facility. So again, I ask, what's in our hands, Grace? It's a simple question, but I wonder what God sees that maybe we don't. Moses saw a stick of wood. God saw an instrument for change. Here's here's number two, and it comes from verse three. Faith always tests our obedience. Faith will always test your obedience. Next Sunday, I'm going to show you from the life of Noah how faith and obedience work hand in hand. Moses, what's that in your hand? It's a staff. Throw it on the ground. And he did. That simple action of obedience. Throw it on the ground. Now, if you're Moses, or if I'm Moses, I might be saying, why? What does throwing my staff on the ground have to do with anything that we're standing here talking about? We ask ourselves the same question. What could possibly be revealed to me by throwing that staff on the ground that I don't already know? What's this going to prove? How could something so insignificant cause me to reassess my position? And how could something so unrelated change my life? Now, you and I, we both know that it did. It forever shaped the future of Moses, but it began with one simple step in obedience. We ask those same questions. Why do I have to obey in this seemingly unrelated circumstance because going to church on Sunday or giving a prioritized percentage of my income or or honoring in my marriage, why do I have to obey? Because that's not going to change this circumstance over here that I've been worried about, that I'm anxious over. I don't see the connection. To Moses, there was a connection because faith always tests our obedience. Here's the principle. Every step of faith begins with one step of obedience. Every step in faith begins with one step in obedience. Now, knowing this, why wouldn't we jump at the chance to obey? I think there are several reasons. Here's why we don't obey. Moses shared these same problems. The crisis of identity, number one. We don't obey because we're not exactly sure who God is and whether or not he can be trusted. We're not exactly sure of ourselves. In chapter 3 and verse 11, From the burning bush, God says, Moses, I've chosen you. And Moses says, who am I? Who am I? He already had an answer in mind. In his mind, I'm a nobody. See, in some twisted sort of way, many people believe they're just not worthy of achieving anything for God. That's for the preachers to do, or that's for the missionaries to do. That's for the authors and the theologians to do. 
I'm not good enough. I'm not important enough. I'm not educated enough. It's a crisis of identity. But there's also a crisis of authority. Moses' second crisis, you can read about it for yourself, chapter 3, verse 13. He says, what if they ask me who sent me? What's your name, God? That's that famous passage where God says, I am that I am. That's my name. In chapter 3 and verse 13, Moses had a legitimate concern. I don't know you very well. These people know nothing of you. Why should the people believe an old man coming down out of the wilderness who, quote, claims to be from God? See, the real issue is God's authority in our lives. Sometimes we don't obey because we haven't accepted yet that God can be trusted. And the third reason is a crisis of control. A crisis of control. Here in chapter 4, Moses basically objects because these people aren't going to take me seriously. How can I go and do this for you, God? These people aren't going to take me seriously. Moses, what's that in your hand? Throw it on the ground. Pick it back up again. It's a crisis of control. You see, when our obedience involves other people or other circumstances beyond our control, again, we wonder, what am I going to get out of obeying? Faith tests our obedience. you got to ask yourself, and I think it's a good habit to get into, God, what do I have in my hand right now that's not surrendered to you? Here's number three. It comes from verse four. Faith threatens our comfort. It threatens our comfort every time, always does. Reach out your hand, verse 4, and take it by the tail. Again, most people don't like snakes. If I'm going to pick up a snake, I'm going to have a rake in my hand. I'm going to press it down on its head, and I'm going to get it right behind the neck so it can't bite me, right? That's not how God told to pick up this snake. God told Moses, pick it up by the tail. This very well could have been a king cobra, a deadly venomous snake. The cobra was fashioned in gold on the diadem of Pharaoh. Maybe it was a sign of strength and power. Look, you're stronger than Pharaoh. Pick up that cobra. And Moses did. But I guarantee you, he wasn't comfortable doing it. I guarantee you, it took a little time. See, God's way is not always the most comfortable way. But it's certainly the most rewarding way. I mean, think about it. When you look back over your life, some of the good things you have and enjoy today started with a very difficult, even uncomfortable decision you made years ago. It's the way it works. Every time God's Spirit leans on us, kind of nudges us in a certain direction, every time God says, hey, you need to forgive that person, hey, you need to let that go, man, just let it go. Hey, you need to ignore that, don't stir it up. Every time God says, forgive them. Every time God says, love them, and they're unlovable, they're just difficult people, and they're hard to love. Give, submit, change, go, stay. In each one of those situations, he's asking us to sacrifice our immediate comfort. Moses would never have become Moses, the guy we know, the big dog in the Old Testament, had he insisted on staying comfortable. Never would have happened. So, I end where I began. Question. What do I have? What do you have? What do I have? Well, Mike, you don't understand, man. I, I'm recently divorced. I, I, I don't really have much. Mike, you don't understand. I, I lived through some dark circumstances when I was a child. You, you just don't understand. There's a man that goes to this church 
who sat in a service just like this one, and he heard me go on and on about giving what you've got to God, and I'm not talking about financially. I'm talking about what God has given you, what's in your hand, what can be used of God, what's not surrendered to God. And he said, Mike, I sat there and I listened and I kind of took mental inventory and he thought, you know, I'm not a man of means. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of things or possessions. I'm not particularly talented. I don't play musical instruments. I could never stand and teach, certainly not the Bible. What could I possibly have that God needs. And he said, you went on and on and on. And I just kept thinking it through over and over and over again. Finally, I got frustrated. I convinced myself, I'm just fooling myself. Mike's talking to somebody else in the church. He's not talking to me. I mumbled a prayer on my way out. Well, God, if I knew what it was, I'd give it to you. He said, we drove home, pulled up to the front of our house, and my neighbor met me in my driveway. He said, man, he called him by name. He said, I've known you for a long time. He said, and every Sunday for 10 years, I watch you get up and get your family into the car and drive to church. My family doesn't. We'll gather for birthday parties and backyard cookouts on Saturday, but come Sunday, you go to church, and I watch the race, or I watch football, or I watch television. He said, I want you to know something. Today, when you left to go to church, I saw you pull out of your driveway. And partially because I know my life needs change, but mostly because one day I want to do for someone what you've done for me, I sat on in front of the television set and a man by the name of Charles Stanley introduced me to Jesus Christ. I want you to be the first to know that because of you, I bought in. Both of those men still attend this church. That's when it hit the first man. That's what I've got to give to God. My reputation my faithfulness, my obedience, and my love. I don't know what you think you have or don't have when it comes to God using you. And maybe to someone on the outside, it may seem insignificant. I know to many people in our community, there's nothing fancy about this building. There's nothing special about it. It's just a a structure made of brick, mortar, and steel. A a contractor took a a set of blueprints, and he's going to raise the building. We're going to have to pay utilities, and we're going to have to keep up the grounds. But the fact is, the question needs to be asked. What do you see? What have you got in your hand? Very well could be the opportunity to witness first-hand, dramatic, real-life change. And that's cool. I believe that in 27 years, God has more than proven himself at Grace Community Church. Now it's up to us to stand on those promises. It's going to challenge our perception. It's going to test our obedience. It's going to threaten our comfort. But God is trustworthy. And in the end, we will be blessed. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I pray that you reveal to each of us what we have that you want, what we can do that you could use, who we are that could be impactful to others and use us. Thank you for an example like Moses, who, once you proved yourself to him, like there was no stopping him. He trusted you. Help us trust you like never before, I pray. In the name of your risen son, Jesus Christ, amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.